If you uh, have a Bible, if you'll open it up to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians 2 is where we will be. And uh, as you turn there, uh, my wife let me know that um, if you are on Facebook, which I am not, um, the link to sign up for the Life Walk is on our Mission Carnival Facebook. So you can find it there. Um, but you could also chat with any of our staff or uh, McKenzie, and uh, we'd be happy to, to send you a link. Um, but it's there. We'd love for you to join us. And um, if you've been tracking along with us, uh, we've been talking about uh, some essential doctrines of the Christian faith. Um, if you weren't here last week, I would highly encourage you um, to listen to last week's message and then Chris's message the week before that. Um, last week, um, if you want to know the tweet, uh, the, the, the summary of the book of Galatians in one tweet, it is uh, last week's sermon. It's Galatians 2, um, six, 15 and 16. It is justification by faith alone. If you want the whole book of Galatians summarized in one tweet, uh, this is what we want our children to know. This is what we want our students to know. How does man become right with God? How does God look down on humanity and see us as righteous? It's not by works of the law. It is only by faith in Christ. It's the premise of the entire letter. It's why Paul is writing this book. Because there's a group of people who have been preyed upon, the Galatian church that Paul planted in Acts 13 and 14, and they have deviated from this message. It's not just faith in Christ, it's obeying the Old Testament law. It's circumcision, it's the Old Testament feast, it's the dietary code and restrictions, it's all of those things. Paul writes this letter because a group of people had departed from that essential doctrine of the Christian faith, that you and I are made right with God by faith alone, no works required. We could not produce enough works that are required to be justified, to be declared righteous in the eyes of God. We couldn't do it. And this group of people, this church, had fallen back into, you gotta believe in Jesus, plus you gotta perform. And if you get the performance and your faith in Jesus, then you're truly saved, then you're on the varsity. And Paul writes this entire letter, and he gives them justification by faith in the first chapter, that it is according to the will and good pleasure of God, the Father and Jesus Christ who gave himself up for us, and it is grace and peace through faith in Christ. No works required. And he says, if anyone deviates from this message, if myself or any of the other apostles, if an angel from heaven comes and preaches that you have to produce anything to be saved, that it's not just faith. If you add anything else to it, he says, let them be accursed, anathema, set apart for condemnation, for destruction, for the wrath of God. Let them be set apart. Why? Because they deviated from the gospel. And if you turn from the gospel, if you add anything to the gospel, which is that you and I are saved by a gift of God, it's his grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone, for God's glory alone, if we change from that message, if we add anything else to it on our part, then Paul says you no longer have the gospel. And then he moves into his testimony saying, hey, this message of justification by faith, this is the message that Jesus Christ gave me when he set me apart and when he met me on the Damascus road and when he saved me. And I preached that message faithfully for 14 years and God blessed it. And then I went to the apostles and I laid the message before them. And the whole time, 14 years, I did not yield for a moment so that you might get the truth of the gospel. And this is the world we live in. 
culture, pressures, the outside world, persecution of the church, all those things, trying to get the church to yield and compromise when it comes to the gospel. Let me tell you, church, scripture has not changed. All the changes that we see in American Christianity today, scripture never changed. It's the church yielding, compromising on the gospel. And Paul says, I didn't compromise for a moment so that you might get the gospel. This is why we will faithfully preach the gospel every single week, so that your children would get the true gospel, that we won't yield for a moment. And fathers and mothers in the room, I pray that that's your mantra at home, that we're not yielding on the gospel. We are preaching it faithfully to our children. We're reminding them of it on a regular basis. And Paul gives us his testimony. He said, I went to the apostles. I gave them the gospel that I had been preaching. They added nothing to me as far as my authority and they added nothing to the message. They approved it. They gave me the right hand of fellowship. And in fact, they sent me on to go and be the apostle to the, to the pagan world, to the Gentiles. And they sent me out. And then he says, ironically, when he said, if an apostle or someone else comes and preaches this message, he brings up Peter. And Peter didn't preach a different message, but he lived a different message. And we'll talk about that. We'll, we'll, we'll review that for just a second um, as we look at our passage today. But I wanna look at our passage, uh, Galatians 2. We're gonna read verses 17 through 21 together. So if you will stand for the reading of God's word, um, I'd love to lay our text before you this morning and we'll jump in together. Uh, this is Galatians 2, um, starting in verse 17. Um, Paul says this, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask the Lord to bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Uh, Father, God, I just pray that you would move in our midst, God, by your word and your spirit's power. Um, not by eloquent speech or wise words or props on a stage. Um, God, what people, what all of us in this room need this morning is your word to transform our hearts, is the winds to blow, is the spirit to move. God, illumine the truth to our minds and to our hearts, and God, conform us to the image of your son. For some, if that means to awaken them in their sin from death to life, God, for others whom you've already saved, God, make us more like your son. Father, lead your sheep by your voice. We are listening, and God, we want to, to see Christ um, in your word. He is the word made flesh. Um, so God, I pray that we would see him in this text. And uh, God, for the glory of your name and for the joy of your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I was reading a book this week and um, it's called Shepherding the Pastor. Um, it's actually by a friend of mine. He was my seminary professor at Bethlehem. His name's Dr. Rich Shadden. Um, he's a good friend. It's always great when your professor becomes your friend. Um, and since I've graduated, he's become a dear friend to me and a great um, mentor and just someone to give advice to. Um, he's actually uh, married to April Harris's uh, sister. So he's um, brother-in-law of Brad and April. 
Uh, he's a pastor of a church in town, but he um, and another pastor here in town wrote a book that Nine Marks published. It's called Shepherding the Pastor. And uh, in the book, um, he starts talking about um, the difference between the textbook and real life. Um, if you're in the medical field, you know this, right? You can read textbooks about procedures and you know, symptoms and all those kind of things, but it's different when someone's bleeding right in front of you or where there's an issue and you gotta figure out what it is. It's, it's different when you finally gotta put all of the academics into practice. And he was talking about in ministry, um, just that, that moment, all of that hit him where he had learned you know, about scriptures when it comes to suffering, that he had learned about you know, ways to, to encourage people in the word and all those things. Um, but then you gotta show up to the hospital and to the bedside and then it becomes real. And uh, I just didn't have much to do with the sermon, but I was just so encouraged by that. Um, to, and this isn't to toot ourselves, you know, toot our own horn or anything like that. Um, but imagine for, with me for a second, church, if every week we gathered and my goal was just to make you feel good and hype you up and give you lots of, you know, empty promises about the next circumstantial thing that God wants to do in your life to make you a little bit happier, a little bit healthier, a little bit wealthier. And that's what we did. We just got you really excited and we sent you home. What would I say to you at your hospital bed when you're about to go meet the Lord? If that's all we preach week in and week out is the next breakthrough that might be on the way is the next circumstantial thing to, to make our lives a little bit easier here on this earth. That would be a really, really awkward, you know, gathering at the hospital bed. What would you say at mine if that's all that we focused on? It's not what Christ has already done for us for all of eternity to give us new life in him and complete joy and for us to spend forever in heaven with him. But if all we focused on was the next thing that we wanted God do to make our earthly time here a little bit more pleasant, that would be an awkward you know, visit at the hospital. But I am grateful that we're talking about things like justification by faith alone and the finished work of Christ. Because Lord willing, one day, when you're at my hospital bed, or I end up at some of yours, and we haven't focused on just the, the, the circumstantial stuff that we want God to do, but we focused on the solid anchor that we have in Christ that is sufficient in our lives and in our death. And that I can be around you or you can be around me and you can say, go be with him. There, it's better, Philippians 1, it's far better to go and be with him. Hey, you've run the race well. You've been faithful to the gospel message. Paul says, my desire is to depart and be with him for that's far better to live as Christ and to die as gain that we focus on, um, this is what you get when you preach through books of the Bible. You get essential doctrines of the Christian faith that are faithful to you and that will, will uphold you and be your sure and steady anchor in life and in death. So I am grateful, whether you are enjoying Galatians or not, that we are walking through this book faithfully because we are talking about things that will be your anchor when you're about to go and meet the Lord. And long before then, when you're navigating bad circumstances and painful circumstances in this life, loss, death, tragedy, divorce, you name it, that you have a sure and steady anchor in Christ to get you through whatever the, the waves of the world bring us, whether it be financial, political, health-wise, you name it, physical, and that we have a sure and steady anchor in Christ. So... Let's go back to the well and back to the fountain once again. And I gave you the summary of the letter. Uh, we talked about how Paul had been preaching this message 
And he ends up um, confronting Peter. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago, um, but he says Peter wasn't preaching a gospel message that was um, justification plus works or faith plus works, but he was living like it. And he uses the term um, orthopedusin in the Greek. Ortho means straight and um, pedo or, or um, pusin is, is the, the, uh, the verb form of the Greek word that is foot. Uh, pus is the Greek word for foot. And what he's talking about is Peter wasn't walking straight in line with the gospel. Ortho meaning straight, pusin meaning walking, um, orthodontist means straight teeth, orthodox means straight or right doctrine, orthopraxy means straight or right methodology. Um, he says Peter wasn't walking in line with the gospel. He wasn't living like it was faith alone in Christ alone for the glory of God alone. That Peter was saved by faith, and it was very much like um, the movie Remember the Titans. Any of you seen the movie Remember the Titans? Uh, one of my favorite movies of all time. My dad took us to the Forest Hill Cinema when I was a child. I thought I was the coolest guy in the world because we, we went to Huey's and we went to a late movie, and I got to stay out past bedtime, and I slept the whole way home. And, uh, but we went and saw this movie, and it's about um, T.C. Williams High School in 1971 in Alexander, Virginia. Um, they are... Um, essentially combining the schools, integrating the schools, black schools, white schools, all into one school. And uh, um, Denzel Washington plays uh, Coach Boone and he's the head coach of this team and he's gotta um, get these two groups of people to play ball together. And the town is going nuts, the parents are going nuts, the students are going nuts, everybody's fighting. And he manages to get the football team with all of their conflicts and all of their issues to camp at Gettysburg. And somehow, in his mysterious ways, he's able to convince them that there is no difference between the white students and the black students, that they are all human, that they are all made in the image of God, that they are all broken, that they all um, have a, a respect for one another, and he forces them to get to know each other and like each other and all these things. And, you know, what was interesting is they, they go to camp and the guy's singing, ain't no, you know, ain't baby, there ain't no, and they tell him to, you know, be quiet is the nice way to put it. Everybody's mad at each other. They're fighting before they get on the bus. And then after camp, they had this moment where everybody's changed and they come back and they're hooping and they're hollering and they're going, nah, 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 right? And they're coming back on the bus and everybody's hooping and hollering and singing and they're all one big happy family. But then what happens? They get back around their families and their parents and their friends and those that were changed. They saw no difference between the two of them. They get back in their environment. And they start to act like they're different than each other again, that one is better than the other. And their friends have to quickly call them out on it. And this is what Peter was doing. He was saved by grace through faith. He was free from the law and he was preaching that message. In Acts 15, he's the one that says that, hey, we can't obey the law either. We're saved by faith just like they are. But his buddies, the Judaizers, the Jews from Jerusalem, they show up and Peter starts acting like it's faith in Jesus, plus you gotta follow the dietary codes again. And Paul says, I confronted him and I called him out. And I told him, he's not walking straight in line with the gospel, that he's set free from those things and he's deceiving others. And because he was deceiving others publicly, I confronted him publicly to correct him because he was leading others astray. And if Paul didn't do this, we would eventually have a Jewish Christian church and a Gentile Christian church that would not interact with each other, the church would be dead. All these scriptures about us being one in Christ and unified in Christ would not exist if Paul didn't confront Peter and say, hey, 
You're not living in line of the gospel. And this is what was happening. And Paul gives us his thesis statement as he's talking to Peter. And we looked at it last week. He says this in verse 15. We ourselves, this is the summary of the whole book of Galatians. We are Jews. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And this is gonna be important for our argument today. He's distinguishing him and Peter, Paul and Peter, as ethnic Jews. We're not Gentile sinners. That's the nice way to put it. Um, they were often called dogs. They were looked at as unclean. Um, it was widely known that the Gentiles were unclean people, that they were sinners. And he says, we are Jews and we're not them. Yet we know that a person, not a Jew, not a Gentile, a human being with a pulse, is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we, the Jews, also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Here's why. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. The summary of the book of Galatians is that it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, no human being will be right with God based on their works. You cannot attain righteousness by your own performance. Children, you need to know this. For you to be made right with God, you can't be good enough to earn that because the standard to earn it is perfection. And I mess up every single day. I fall short, I sin, I disobey God. We need someone to make us righteous. We need someone who is able to attain that perfect standard. And who is it? Jesus. Our only hope to be made right with God as broken, sinful humans is Jesus Christ, is an outside righteousness, is someone giving his perfect record of righteousness to us. And that's what happens at the cross. Jesus takes on our sin because he didn't deserve to be on the cross. We did. He takes on our sin. He goes to the cross and he gives us his righteousness. You cannot earn righteousness. You cannot be justified. That's what that term means, to be declared or made righteous. You can't become righteous based on your own works. Paul says it right here. By works of the law, no one, Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter, will be justified. Righteousness cannot be attained by obedience to the law. Obedience to God's law cannot save you. Why? Because it's very simple. We can't obey it. That's why it can't save you, because the standard is perfect obedience. It could save you if you obeyed it perfectly, but the problem is we cannot. What is the Old Testament law? Well, it's the, the 613 commandments, uh, but Jesus was confronted in the gospels. He was asked to summarize the law. And what does he say? The whole law is fulfilled in loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. So you wanna know what all of the law was intended to produce in us? Loving God perfectly and loving each other perfectly. That's the standard to obey the law. This is what, if you obey the, 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 the Old Testament law, if you obey this, this is what you get. But you have to do it perfectly all the time. Loving God with everything you've got all the time and loving your neighbor perfectly. The problem with that is we can't do it. And even if, and this was the problem with the scribes and the Pharisees, they started convincing themselves and convincing others that they could do it. 
And even if for some reason the law can restrict some of our actions, right? We're never gonna attain it. But even if you've fooled yourself and started to fool others, that you're, you're meeting the standards of the law with your actions, the law can restrict your hands to some extent. We still sin with our hands all the time, but it can't fix your heart. The law cannot restrict your heart. This is the point of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus confronted those that said, hey, I'm meeting the standard. I haven't murdered anybody physically. And what does he say? You murder them emotionally all the time with all of the anger and the hatred in your heart. Yeah, the the law might have stopped your hand, but it hasn't fixed your evil heart. Hey, the law has restricted my hands. I've never actually physically committed adultery. But he says you do it emotionally all the time when you lust after another woman. The law might restrain your hand, but it can never fix your heart which is why he opens the sermon with blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who know that they're spiritually bankrupt for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin. Why? Because they're gonna be comforted. How do you be blessed? How do you be righteous? How do you be saved? Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's not their own, that they can't attain. That's freely given in Jesus. That's the point of the sermon is we cannot obey the law. We might try to fool people into thinking that we have, but even if you can hide it well with your hands, which you never can fully obey the law, even with your hands, you can't obey it at the heart level either. We need another righteousness. And here's the deal. The law was like a ladder. And I wanna be very clear, don't don't leave midway through the sermon because the law was never intended to be a ladder. But the way we view the law is, this is God's perfect standard. Humanity's down here. Here's all of the things we have to do perfectly to get to God. And the, the, the crucial thing that we talked about last week is for some of you in here, you might think this is how you earn a relationship with God. This might be what you've been taught for your whole childhood, that for you to be saved, for God to love you, you have to climb the ladder. You have to perform. You have to be good, you have to not curse, you have to not do all these things, you have to go to church a certain amount of times, you have to do all these things to make it to the top. The problem with that is, the law is a standard. It's an impossible standard. It's loving God perfectly and loving your neighbor perfectly. But the law was never given as a ladder. Although we see it that way and we view it that way because it is an insurmountable standard, Paul will tell us that the law is holy and righteous and good and pure. It's, it's God's holiness written on pages. Here's how you live. If you want to, to, to be as loving as I am and as just as I am and as kind and as gracious as I am, here's the standard, perfection. But as we talked about last week, the law was never given as a ladder for us to climb. That was not its intent. God is not a cruel tyrant in heaven giving us humanity an impossible ladder and just laughing at us because we can't climb it. That's not the gospel. That's not what he did. The law was actually given as a mirror. The the standard was given and God does not budge on the standard. The standard's perfection. This was the standard. The standard was given not as a ladder for us to climb, but as a mirror for us to see that, wow, I can't do this. It was actually given as an x-ray. It was meant to diagnose us, not to be the path for us to attain salvation. The law was given, the ladder was given to meant to show us that we could never climb it, that we need a savior. It was meant to expose and show and reveal our sin, not to fix it, because we can't climb this ladder. It's an impossible standard to meet. Why? 
Is it the law's fault? We're gonna see that in just a second. It's not the law's fault. The law is good and right and pure. But the law was meant to be an x-ray for humanity, to show us the perfect standard of God. And you don't heal things with an x-ray. The x-ray shows you that you have something broken. But the doctor doesn't look at me and say, yeah, give it about four more x-rays and you'll be good to go. No, the law was meant to show me that I have an internal, I have a condition and it's called sin. And I need someone to come and heal me and make me whole. I need somebody else to come and save me and do for me what I could never do for myself. It was given to show us that we need a savior. And this is gonna be crucial for what Paul says in verse 17 and following. He says this in verse 17, if you look, he says, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? And he says, certainly not. The Greek is a lot stronger than that. But here's argument number one that Paul's gonna start to craft as to why you cannot have faith in Jesus plus works of the law. And remember the, the, the context of what he's saying here. He's talking to Peter and he's been talking about we are Jews, they're Gentiles. And he's, when he says our here, he's talking about the Jews. He's already established that the Gentiles were already seen. It was publicly acknowledged that the Gentiles were sinners. They were unclean. And he's gonna say, but we, he's talking about the Jews here. If in our endeavor, Jews, to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is then is Christ then a servant of sin? We ourselves are Jews, they're Gentiles, they're sinners. But he says this, if in our endeavor, Jews, if Jews who come to Jesus and they're justified by faith in Jesus Christ, what has to happen? Everybody knows the Gentiles are sinners, but if Jews are going to come to Christ and put their faith in him, and say, you've done for me what I can never do for myself, what do they first have to do? To admit that they're sinners. And this idea that the Jews were clean and the Gentiles were unclean, Paul is blowing it up in this moment. He says, but if the Jews have to come to Jesus, which they do, we've already established that, if they have to be justified by faith in Jesus also, they are found to be sinners. The world's about to realize that the Jews, we ourselves are sinners. Peter says this in Acts 15. Hey guys, we could not obey the law either. Why would we make them obey it? We couldn't do it. He is admitting that he is a sinner. And he says, if our endeavor to be justified in Christ, if we come to Christ alone for our salvation, we have to admit that we're sinners. He says, we too, talking about the Jews, were found to be sinners. So the natural question is, for Jews to forsake the law because they can't obey it and turn to Christ, he says, does this mean Jesus made the Jews sinners? And he says, no. Jesus didn't cause us to sin. Paul in Romans will say, does that mean the law caused us to sin? He says, no. The problem wasn't the law. The problem wasn't Jesus. And Paul says, by no means. He makes sure, meganoita, it's, it's the strongest way to say no in the Greek language. Essentially, may it never be even said or may it never even be so. Did Jesus cause the Jews to sin? Not a chance. Is Jesus a servant of sin? No. Did he lead them to sin? No. That's not what he's saying here. The law was never given to 
save them. The law was given to expose them. It didn't make them sinners. It revealed them to be sinners. You wanna reveal to your own self how sinful you are? Try to obey the law for the rest of the day. Just laser focus on for the rest of the day, I'm gonna obey the Bible perfectly. And watch what happens. You become much more acquainted with just how sinful you are and just how shallow and fickle our hearts are and just how wicked and corrupt our minds are. Just try to love God for the rest of the day without messing up. It was the law that exposed our sin. It didn't make us sinners. It just showed us that we are. It showed us that we have a problem. Romans 7, verse 7 says this, what, shall, what then shall we say? That the law is sin. What does Paul say? Same thing, Meg anointed, by no means. May it never be. The law is not sinful. The law is God's perfect holy standard. If, yet if it, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. The law was the standard that showed us just how broken we are, just how much of a need of a savior we are. And then he skipped down to verse 10. He says this, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Then he says this, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. What brought death to me? It was the sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Here's what Paul is saying. The problem was not Jesus. The problem was not the law. The problem is deep within us. It wasn't the law that caused us to sin. It was the sin in us that caused us to sin. It was the sin nature in us. The very commandment that promised life. This is the command all throughout scripture. I'm gonna be your God. You're gonna be my people. If you obey my word, you will live. You will have life. But if you disobey me, you will die. This is the promise in Genesis 3. Here's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you obey me, you'll have life. The day that you eat it, you will surely die. The problem is not the command. The problem is our sin. The problem is our disobedience. The law is perfect and it's right. And he says, may it never be. And then Paul says this. He says, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. And here Paul is being super nice. This is not the point of the sermon, but if you want a tip in how to, to confront someone, when Paul says I here, he really means them. But he's saying I here to be nice. So if you want a tip on how to politely confront your, your spouse, use the, use the pronoun I, but you really mean you, right? Hey, I think you know, I could be on time a little more, right? And then just see how that goes. But Paul's being polite, but what he's really talking about is the Gentiles here. He's talking about Peter. He's talking about um, the Judaizers. He's talking about anybody that adds the law back to faith. And here's what he's saying. If I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. And he's saying, Peter, if we add the law back as a requirement plus Jesus, then we're sinners again. Here's argument number one. And as, I, as we talked about last week, the rest of the book of Galatians, 
with some practical application at the end is gonna be biblical arguments why salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. It's always been that way in the Old Testament. We're gonna see him talk about Abraham. And this is just a, a logical argument of why we have to be saved by faith alone in Christ. And if he says, if we rebuild what was torn down, then we prove ourselves to become transgressors. If the gospel is faith in Jesus, plus you gotta keep this, then guess what? We're sinners again. Almost hit my head. Then we become sinners again. Why? Because we couldn't obey this to begin with. So why would we add it back? If you gotta believe in Jesus and now keep this, then we're still dead in our sin. We're back where we started. This is the argument that he's making. Verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. What he's saying here is, Peter, we've died to the law. We no longer have to to meet that burden and meet that standard to to be made alive in Christ, to have a right relationship with God. We're no longer bound by the burden of the law. The sting of sin is death and the power of death is the law. That if you and I are still under the law, then we're dead because we can't obey it. And he says, Peter, why in the world will we add this back? It makes no sense. If for you to be saved is based on your performance and your faith, hey, trust in Jesus, but then you gotta be good enough. You gotta put in some effort. You've gotta perform. It's faith plus your performance. Then we're back to square one. We rebuild what was torn down. And here we are once again, we are in our sin. Colossians 2 says he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Romans 6, Paul says this, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God, so that you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Because of Jesus' death, we're united with him in his death. The beautiful thing about faith in Jesus Christ, union with Christ, is that when you put your faith in Jesus, you're no longer trusting in your works and you are united with Jesus in his perfect life, you're united with Jesus in his death, and you're united with Jesus in his resurrection. That it is as, it is as if when Jesus obeyed the law, you obeyed it perfectly. That's the good news of the gospel, is Jesus was our substitute and Jesus did it for us. So why would we add this back and to think that for me to earn God's love, I gotta do it again? I gotta earn it again. Romans 7, verse four, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. That we're not, we are not under the law, we're not burdened by the law, we don't belong to the law, we belong to someone else to him who has been raised from the dead in order that you may bear fruit for God. The beauty of the gospel is that through faith in Jesus, you and I have died to sin, we've died to the law, we've died to the world. That's the beauty of it. Paul says this in verse 20, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. That through my union with Christ, it is as if I met the standard and it is as if I died. And it is as if I've been raised. I've been crucified with Christ. <clears throat> it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That phrase, I've been crucified with Christ. The verb there is a perfect passive. Passive meaning we didn't do it. It was done to us. I've been crucified with Christ. I didn't do that. I didn't earn that. I didn't work for that. It's been done to me. How? Through my faith in Jesus Christ. I've been crucified with him. And it's in the perfect tense, meaning it's a completed, it's, it's done. It's an accident in the past that's finished, that has ongoing effects for the rest of my life. <clears throat> that I've been crucified with him. The moment I put my faith in him, is it, it is as if I met the standard because he met it in my place and I died the death and paid the penalty because he did that in my place and I've been raised because I'm united with him. That's the goodness of the gospel. Paul also says this in Romans six. He says, if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free <clears throat> from sin. And then he says this in 2 Corinthians chapter five, I would encourage you to bookmark this. He says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He died for all, why? So that we could live and we wouldn't live for ourselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is the goodness of the gospel. Children, students, that through faith in Jesus Christ, you are united with him in his death, the death that you and I deserved. He took it for us. And it's as if you paid the penalty and <clears throat> he met the standard for us, pointed to the wrong thing. And as if, it is as if you and I met the standard which we could never meet. The beauty of the gospel is the standard is real. The standard is perfection. And God is not in heaven waiting for you to try to be perfect. What did he do? The gospel is this. God himself came down to earth and he climbed the ladder in our place. He met the standard of righteousness and perfection according to the Old Testament law perfectly. He didn't throw it out. He didn't say that's no longer the plan. He met the standard. In him, there was no sin. Perfect righteousness. He met the standard and then he died the death in our place. We've been united in his death and in his resurrection. And it's that reality that causes us to love him and not live for ourselves, but to live for him. He sent his son to die in our place. The Christian life is a life lived by faith in Jesus. Paul says this in Romans 14. He says, uh, for no one lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Whether um, we obey in life or in death, we are his because we've been united with him. Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain. And here's the crux of Paul's argument. The entire Christian life is a loving response 
to the love extended by God, giving his only son to die in our place, to be our substitute. That's the, you wanna know what Christianity is? It's living in response to the cross. That's what it is. It's believing the cross and it's living in light of the cross and responding to the cross. It's taking up our own cross. Why? Because he took the one for me. He went to the cross in my place. So now I'll die to myself daily and I'll live for him. He lived for me. He died for me. So I'll gladly live for him out of love for him. Not duty, not guilt, but grace that he took it for me. The Christian life is response to the cross. And then he says this in verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If you and I, to be saved, we have to believe the cross and we have to obey the law, then the cross was for nothing. Because if it's still up to our performance, then we've nullified the grace of God. We're right back to where we started. And we can't meet the standard. If it's Jesus plus your performance, then we have no hope. Paul says, why would we add this back? It makes no sense. We've died to the law because he met the standard of the law. He's paid it in our place for all the ways that we failed according to the law. Why in the world would we add this back? Church, this combined is not good news. This combined is not a gift. He says we've nullified the grace. The word grace there is just an undeserved gift. If this is how you're saved, believe in Jesus and be good enough, then you've, you've canceled out the gift. This is not a gift. This is a burden once again. Believe in Jesus and go and try to be good enough. That's not good news. That's a burden. We've nullified the grace of God. And he says, if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Romans 11 says this, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. If it's still up to us, that's not a gift. That's a burden. That's a burden that we can't bear. And grace is no longer grace. If this is the gift that Jesus gave us, then that's not a gift. And we're still dead in our sin. We've nullified the grace of God. Why in the world would we preach a gospel or expect a gospel or live in light of a gospel that says you have to perform and you gotta believe in Jesus to be saved? You don't have the love or approval of God unless you're a good enough person and you believe in Jesus. He says we're right back to square one. We've nullified God's grace and we can't attain it. Then Jesus died for no purpose. Romans 4 says this, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. If you have to work for it, that's not a gift, that's a wage. If you have to earn it with your performance, that's not grace. That's God paying you based on your performance, your work. For the one who works, you don't get grace, you get wages. But the good news of the gospel is you don't have to work. Why? Because Jesus went to the cross and he said, the work is finished. I've done it. I've met the standard of the law and I'm dying for all of the ways that humanity has failed to meet the standard. The one who does not work, but believes justified by faith alone to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. 
His faith is counted as righteousness. Church, here's the gospel. Our works have earned us a wage. Paul tells us in Romans 6 that the wages of our works, the wages of our sin has earned us a a payment, a reward. And what is it? It's death. This is what our works get us. So if you add works back to the cross, we're still dead. We're still dead in our sin because we can't perform the works. The good news of the gospel is, yes, our works have earned us a wage, which is death. But the free gift of God is salvation in Christ Jesus, is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's the good news of the gospel. As Jesus took what we had earned, which is death, and he took it on himself. And then he gave us what he had earned, which is perfect righteousness and intimacy and union with God and all of the blessings of heaven. Jesus is the only one who had earned those. He took our wages and theologians call it the great exchange and he gave us his wages. He took on our sin and he gives us his righteousness. And by faith in him, he calls it done. It's finished. My body was broken, my blood was shed to cover all the ways that you don't meet the law. And all of the beauty of being a part of the family of God, being righteous and holy is given to you. Not based on your performance, but based on your faith in him. That's what faith is. It's no longer trusting in yourself. It's no longer trusting in your works. It's trusting in someone else. It's trusting in his finished work. Church, this is the gospel. And this is the first argument of many that we're gonna see. And the natural question is, what do we do with the law? Why do we gather every week and read the law? Why do we gather every week and talk about the Bible and talk about Christ and talk about commands in scripture? What do we do with the law? Paul's going to address that as we move forward. But remember, the problem was not the law. The problem was our sin. Now we obey the law, not to try to save ourselves, but because scripture all over says this law leads to life, that the law is good and righteous and holy. So now we don't have the burden of trying to be saved by our obedience to the law. Now we get to rest and obey it out of joy for what he's done. Our salvation doesn't hinge on our performance. Now we obey the law out of a heart of gratitude and love for Christ because the law's good. The law wasn't the problem. The problem was our sin and Christ has paid for our sin. And now we run after him. James calls it the perfect law that gives freedom. That there is freedom and there is peace and there is joy when we orient our lives around the word of God, around the written law and word of God. That there is freedom and peace and joy. And now we run after it knowing that our salvation doesn't hinge on it because our salvation hinges on the cross. And now we obey God's law because we love him and because it's good and because it's right and it's just and it's pure and it's holy. And I wanna live a life following my savior. And Jesus is the word of God made flesh. The Holy Spirit of God wrote this word. And this is how God calls his people to live not to save themselves, but because they've already been purchased and saved and redeemed. Does that make sense? And that's what we're gonna see as we continue in Galatians. This is argument number one. These two combined are not good news. If we start preaching faith in Jesus plus law, then we're back to where we started. We've nullified the grace of God. We cannot obey the law and Christ died for nothing. The beauty of the gospel is the cross and cross alone. Jesus met the standard. Jesus died for all the ways that we don't meet the standard. And that exchange is free. It's a free gift of God's grace. 
through faith in him. If you don't have that, you can be justified. You can be declared righteous in the sight of God today. You can have that. It's by putting your faith in Jesus. It's I'm no longer trusting in my own performance. I'm trusting in his finished performance in my place. I'm no longer trying to win God's love with my works. I know I have it because Jesus finished the work. If that's you, we would love to talk to you about what it means to understand and believe the gospel. But the invitation is free this morning. And for the rest of us, church, the law is good. The law is right. The law is holy. But do not believe the lie that God's love for you is dependent on this, on your ability to climb this. Satan would love to cripple our church, to cripple you into thinking that God's love for you is based on whether or not you read the Bible this morning. Or God's love for you is based on whether or not you gave to the person on the side of the road this week. That God's love for you is based on your ability to be kind to others. None of those things are bad, but your salvation doesn't hinge on those things. And if there's a way that Satan can just make you anxious for the rest of your life, it's to convince you that you have to do the work, that you have to climb the ladder, that you have to earn it. And the good news of the gospel is you don't. Now we pick up the law and we love it and we cherish it because our salvation doesn't hinge on our performance. It's been done. And now we run after him because he's a good, good father and he loves us. And his word is right and it is true and it is pure and it is good for our lives. Does that make sense? So let's be a people who run to the word, not to win God's approval. We run to the word because we already have it and we wanna love him more, we wanna know him more, we wanna walk with him more intimately, and the key to doing that is in his word, to living in accordance with his word, because we've been redeemed and because we've been saved. Do you see how they fit together? As soon as we add the law back, it's not good news, it's not a gift to you. That's a performance trap that none of us can meet. And the good news is, we don't. We have the cross and the work is finished, amen? Let's pray and we'll sing. Father, we love you. God, thank you for your word. Father, I'm excited as we continue to walk through this letter. God, that was argument number one. Where we're gonna see over and over again that it has always been salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. And God, I pray for the believer in the room that you would set us free from the ability of us trying to earn your love. And God, I pray for the, the person in here this morning. God, who walked in here thinking that church and Christianity and religion was people just trying to be good enough for God to love them. God, we could never do it. We could never be good enough. God, I pray that some people that walked in here and saw Christianity as a ladder leave here seeing it as a cross. God, see it as what you've done in their place, a free invitation because Christ's body was broken and his blood was shed. God, as an invitation for salvation, to all who will believe. God, thank you for what you've done. It's the only song we sing. It's the finished work of Christ. Put that song in our mouths as we respond. It's in Jesus' name we pray.